I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you For generations, we've been taught that there are two ways to succeed, either from talent or practice. But on today's episode, Dr. Ron Friedman describes a powerful third path, one that has quietly launched icons in a wide range of fields from artists, writers, and chefs to athletes, inventors, and entrepreneurs. It's called reverse engineering. This interview shows you how to learn to spot different hidden patterns inside the works you love, discover how to turn those insights into a blueprint, and how to apply proven formulas to your field and to succeed faster. Ron is the founder of Ignite 80, a learning and development company that translates research in neuroscience, human physiology, and behavioral economics into practical strategies that help working professionals become healthier, happier, and more productive. His first book, The Best Place to Work, was selected as an Inc. Magazine Best Business Book of the Year. He has a new book called Decoding Greatness, which is an excellent read out now. Ron, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Yes, this is, this is always fun for me when, when we get to dive deep behind the person and, and then a lot of the work they've done. And I know we're going to decode greatness, but I would love to start off by decoding you a bit. And I'm wondering, in terms of, of your day, do you have any non-negotiables that, that you've been doing for a while and are just essential to your overall success in a day? I need to exercise. If I don't exercise, I don't sleep well. If I don't sleep well, my productivity sinks, my creativity flounders, uh, got to exercise. And, and it's something that I discovered, interestingly enough, and we may talk about this later, but I'm just going to give people a preview. One of the strategies I talk about in Decoding Greatness is getting yourself a five-year uh, journal. And what a five-year journal is, is it's got 365 pages, one for each day of the year. And it allows you to record what you did on that day. But critically, after a year of doing this, you get to see what you did on this day last year. And so it's a process where you're constantly learning about yourself. And it's one of the things I discovered about myself is invariably, I would I would write, I, I was tired today. And then I'd go back and see that I hadn't exercised the day before. So uh, that's how I figured that out about myself. What specifically uh, about the five-year journal? I mean, it seems like there's the the immediate benefits in terms of really writing down and distilling our thoughts, but then being able to go back so you also get those long-term benefits as well. I'm wondering if there's anything unique you found specifically to the five-year journal. Well, yeah, you hit it right on the head where it's the process of journaling we know from the research gives you a sense of control over the things happening in your life because now you're the narrator writing down what happened. And that just provides a sense of understanding and just emotional control where things aren't happening to you. Now you're the author. But beyond that, the five-year journal, as opposed to just regular journaling, is it, it reminds you of past successes. It reminds you of overblown fears that you had, challenges you've overcome. So it's a great way of just uh, boosting your confidence about all that you've accomplished in the past. Because I, I don't know about you, Sean, but for me, I, I'm always thinking about the next challenge. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about all I've achieved. Um, and I think a lot for a lot of top performers, that's the case. And so having that daily reminder about all that you've accomplished, all that you've achieved, all the challenges that seemed like a big deal at the time that you are now, you know, are now, are now far in your uh, rearview mirror, 
that it's just a great tool. And then beyond that, for my kids, I can tell you, I often will write down something my, funny my kids said. And, um, and so that and my, my wife has a five-year journal as well. So then we compare notes about what we remember about each day. It's a great conversation starter as well. Yeah, I saw this coming up in the book. I, I've never used a, a five-year journal. I, I use a decision-making journal and some other ones. The, the thing I love about the, the five-year journal, which is very similar to the decision-making journal, is a lot of times, even around those failures in the moment, oh, they're just, they're brutal, right? And, then, and we look back and we're like, wait, I, I barely even remembered this, but in the moment. So I think that's a, the helpful reference for, for knowing when we're going through some something challenging or difficult, this too shall pass and, and we'll get past it. hundred percent. And I would add to that, you know, anytime something bad happens to you in your life, the question you need to ask yourself is, will this matter in 10 years? If the answer is no, it's just a lot easier to let it go. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, the decision-making frameworks, like 10, 10, 10, 10 years, 10 months, 10 minutes, like, is this going to impact me that much? And it's funny, once we put things through that filter, how much helpful, how much more helpful the decisions we can make are. I mean, I, I know you've worked with, with so many different clients um, around setting up routines, peak performance and things like that. Is there anything else this doesn't have to pertain to, to the morning um, that are just helpful in, in, in doing things correctly throughout the day for peak performance? Oh, man. How much time do you have? <laughs> well, I, I have. To, I mean, based on on who you've worked with, I'm assuming there's there's a few key ones that that just come okay. up again and again. Well, let me tell you that the thing. If I if I had to distill everything I know down to one insight that everyone listening to this needs to apply, it's figure out when your best hours are. So some people are best in the morning. Other people are better in the afternoon. Some people are better in the evening. And to the extent that you know when you're at your best, meaning you have the most energy available, you need to block off those hours for your most critical work. So for me, that tends to be after breakfast. So I eat, you know, I'll I'll eat a protein filled breakfast uh, and then I will go right into either writing or planning, anything that is cognitively complex. And if I have a doctor's appointment that the physician says, hey, you got to come in at nine o'clock, I will fight tooth and nail to move that doctor's appointment to the afternoon. And too, too often, we just let people just take our best hours from us. And when we do that, we suffer because we try to make it up. And then anything that you do in the, for me, anything I do in the afternoon is twice as hard as it would have been in the mornings. So that gets really expensive time-wise. And so that is where I start with a lot of clients is I, I will measure their energy levels over the course of the day. And I'll tell them these are your best hours. And then I give them strategies for protecting those best hours. Yeah. Block, blocking those, those key creative time periods uh, have been extremely beneficial for me. Something that's, that's already popped up here in the few minutes we've been talking is just around the authoring of your own story. And I would love to know how you think about that. The authoring of my own story. Say more about that. Well, you just mentioned that almost even, even taking control of the energy throughout the day and and our peak hours. And it seems like a lot of this is really lifestyle design to, to be aligned with, with you being able to control the story a bit better. Uh, I'm just wondering how you think about really like taking grasp of your life and authoring it. Man, that's a deep question. I mean, I would say that Earlier in my life, I, uh, you know, I, I, I had the same understanding thing that I think that a lot of folks do coming out of college, which is that you need to get a, a job that allows you to be respectable, but also earn a good living. And uh, somewhere around my, the, my, my 30s, I realized that, A, you're not going to get wealthy working for someone else, and B, uh, that invariably you're not going to be satisfied unless you're in control of how you invest your time and and how you build your career. And so I did something really uncomfortable, which is I quit my job and I wrote a book and that's how I started my author career. And, uh, 
I was very fortunate in that I got a book deal before I had any kind of platform. I'm like the last guy to get a book deal before having a website or Twitter account. I was just some psychologist who wrote a book proposal and somehow my agent sold it through to Penguin Random House. That first book, by the way, is called The Best Place to Work. And it was about the gap between the latest science and the modern workplace. So I took over a thousand academic studies and I translated them to plain English so that regardless if you're a CEO or just someone who's entering the workforce, you had access to the latest science about how you can elevate your performance and create a great workplace. And that allowed me, having that book, then that led to keynotes and workshops, and that allowed me to focus on what I wanted to focus on. Now, I understand that for a lot of folks, you know, maybe you're not a writer or whatever. I'm not suggesting that that's the ideal path for anybody. But what I do think is critical is allowing yourself to take risks, particularly when you're young, that um, at least allow you to follow through on the thing, like swinging for the fences, go for the thing that you really want to do. And worst case scenario, you can come back and get a real job. But the, the thing that allowed me to do that, to take that risk and be really uncomfortable financially and just in terms of like my sense of self for many years, was I would always ask myself, how will my children view this period in my life later on? In other words, what will they say about dad if dad took this uh, risk, didn't work out, he had to get a real job versus if dad had just stayed with the real job throughout? How would they react to that? And and I, I just, I think that the, the way that I would interpret that if I were them was like, wow, he took a risk. That's pretty cool. At least he tried. And I think that gave me the courage to try it. And so I think when it comes to authoring our own lives, yeah, we could talk about it on the hour-to-hour, day-to-day level, but I think more macro, what are you really working toward? And are you giving yourself the space to swing for the fences? I think that's something that anyone can benefit from. Yeah, Ron, I'm glad you went that that macro level there with with that question, that answer, because that was fantastic. I love that. Even having two young kids, uh, I think about that a lot, right? Like, how how, how do you want to be in their eyes? What type of person are you going to be for them? Uh, So I absolutely love that. One thing that you brought up there in in your own story, which you also hit on in your book, Decoding Greatness, which I I, I love, by the way, I know we're going to hit a lot into it, is that you de-risked essentially in terms of getting the book, uh, it wasn't like you just burned the, the the boats and went all in. So, can you just kind of talk about how entrepreneurs, authors, can de-risk in their own life in, in order to figure out other things like releasing their own book? Yeah. So, in the in this book, Decoding Greatness, the first half is about a strategy called reverse engineering, which we're going to talk about shortly. And the second half is about once you know the path that you're aiming for, how do you get there successfully? And one of the strategies that successful entrepreneurs often use is that they somehow manage to take the risk out of risk-taking. And so I talk about some strategies that you that they use and how you can apply them in your life. And I'll just give you one of the examples is, um, is uh, uh, probably my favorite example of in this chapter is Uh, sell first, build later. And what I mean by that is start with the sale. And if you can make the sale, then you build the thing you said you were going to build. And this is is a strategy that has worked for many uh, successful entrepreneurs, even long before Kickstarter. So a great example is the story of Nick Swinmurm, who in the uh, early 2000s started a website that allowed people to purchase shoes online. And he did not start by building a massive warehouse of shoes and getting investor funding to do so. What he did was he went to his local shoe store and he asked if he could take photos of the shoes. And if a customer bought the shoes, he would 
come to the shoe store, purchase them by, with cash, and then mail, put them in the mail himself. That led to Zappos. And he created Zappos. Obviously, there's a lot more to that story than just what I just, what I just shared, but it's, it's the origin of Zappos is he did not build a warehouse. He took photos and he put them online. And that's a, so he sold shoes he didn't own technically, right? And that's an approach that has so much, so many implications for all of us. And in my case, it's how I got my first book deals. I wrote that proposal. The book didn't exist, right? I wrote a book proposal. Someone liked it. They gave me some money. That enabled me to quit my job and write for a year. And it's a great way of taking risks without investing years and years and years building something that no one wants. Yeah, I, I can speak from my own entrepreneurial experience. I, I've done the build first, sell second. Doesn't work out that well. And then sell first, build second. Believe me, it's a way smarter approach. A lot of bumps and bruises uh, from stories around that. But but you just hit on a minute ago. I mean, for generations, we've just kind of been taught two ways to succeed, right? It's going to be with practice and talent. But in decoding greatness, you, you hit on this third way, which is reverse engineering. So I would love for you just to define reverse engineering, and then we can get into some of the high-level concepts around it. Okay. So reverse engineering simply means finding great examples in your field and then working backward to figure out how they were created and more importantly, how you can recreate them yourself. So the particular strategies involved in reverse engineering will depend on your field. I can tell you many nonfiction writers will go right to the end notes at the end of the book, the bibliography, to identify the sources that went into creating the book. Chefs often order dishes to go, and then they spread out intricate sauces along white plates. And often there's a magnifying glass involved so they can identify what the ingredients were that went into creating that dish. Um, photographers will look for clues hidden in, in the images that novices would simply ignore. For example, they'll look at the length of the shadows, which tell you the intensity of the light source and the time of day in which the photo was shot. They'll look for reflections in the eyes of the person in the, in the image so that they can identify where the light source was placed. All of these examples illustrate the importance of not just passively experiencing things that you enjoy, but to, to adopt a mindset of curiosity that asks, how was this created? What can I learn from this? And how can I apply this to the thing I'm working on? Oh, I, lo- I love that. That curiosity mindset is just foundational. You, you see that again and again, not, not only from past guests on this show, but, but a ton of highly successful people throughout life. And it, it just, it's so cool to kind of see you deconstruct so, some of these best habits and, and practices. The way I, I think about this is kind of like the, the, the masters, they're playing games inside of games, and, and you really break this down. But I, I'm just like curious overall, Ron, like th- obviously spending a few years writing a book, how did this concept and commitment to write the book around reverse engineering even, even come to fruition for you? Well, this is a strategy I've been using for years, and it's anything I've done that has been successful comes from this strategy. In other words, that's how I learned to write academic journal articles. It's how I learned to write book proposals. It's how I learned to create presentation decks. It's finding examples of ones that really stood out and then trying to figure out what's the pattern in in this. How does this work? What's happening in the first paragraph or the first slide? Uh, What's happening in the second one? And then using the strategies that I talk about in the book, like reverse outlining and quantifying features. And it's really just about having a methodical approach that breaks down the examples that make things unique. And that applies to any field. You, if you, if you're someone who writes emails or you write memos or you write presentation decks or proposals, there's a methodology that you can use to find those great examples and identify what makes them distinct from ordinary examples. And then templatize that, meaning take examples that you've 
found to be impactful, and then turn them into a template that allows you to build on that formula and evolve it in a different direction. Yeah, Ron, you hit on one of the things I love that this isn't domain specific. You can take the lessons from this book, even if it's talking about an author or an entrepreneur, and you might not even have anything to do with those fields, but you can apply them to your own life. That's what I love. Uh, I'm curious, has there been just a lesson that you uncovered during this writing process that, that you feel has just really stuck with you? Well, the example uh, of uh, Sir Ken Robinson's TED Talk is one that has really been interesting for me in all of the ways that I've applied it. So I can tell you that I am someone who's a researcher, so I really like facts and I like details. And one of the things I did in Decoding Greatness is I take the example of Sir Ken Robinson's TED Talk, the most popular TED Talk of all time, and then I show you, I take you step by step, what is he doing in each paragraph and what can we learn from that? And one of the discoveries you make when you analyze his talk is that he has one fact throughout the entire TED Talk, just one fact. Now, if I were writing a TED Talk from scratch, I would, as I mentioned, just loaded with facts because I would think that's the best way of being persuasive. But that's not the thing that works for him. And it's not the thing that makes his TED Talk go viral and become the most watched TED Talk of all time. What he does do a lot of is storytelling. And particularly like mundane, uh, everyday stories just anecdotes that aren't even about famous people. They're just about people in his life or his parents. And that takeaway was really interesting for me because it's the storytelling that makes his TED Talk go viral. It's not the facts. And that has informed the way that I now deliver keynotes. And it's, I think, something that has really been critical to the way that I write. And, and you'll note from, in having read Decoding Gradients, there's like hundreds of stories. And I don't do it over a long period of time, meaning I don't take like 10 pages to tell you a story. I'll do it in a paragraph because I just want to get to the takeaway. And that's that's something that I have learned about myself as a reader, which is I don't need to read a story for 20 pages for it to be impactful. I want to get to the takeaway. And so uh, that has some, it's something I've embraced. I've taken it from my reader experience and I've put it into practice as a writer, which is I write the kind of book that I want to read, which means that it's loaded with actions that I can take at the end of the book and it's based in science. And so it's not just about figuring out what works for someone else, which is obviously part of the big part of the book because it's, that's what reverse engineering is. It's also how do you take what you've learned and then make it actionable and apply it in the things you create. And that's, that's the, that's been both the lesson and the impact for me. Yeah, I mean, as a voracious reader myself, I, I love that you get to the crux of the, of the story, but then you do such a good job telling so many stories throughout. I mean, that, that Sir Ken Robinson one, uh, that's like one of those models that once you read it, you can't forget it. And it, uh, that just blew my mind. Uh, he only had one fact in there and, and just the number of jokes he told, I think it was in like the high 40s. And I was like, wait a second, this, this completely blew my mind in what a successful minute talk. talk. 18-minute talk, 40 jokes. <laughs> yeah, it's it just absolutely mind-boggling. So I, I kind of think about those as just different stories that like really shape us and frame us, and we can learn a lot through reading. I'm wondering for you, though, ha- have there been any people who have shaped you similar to, to a story like that? Well, there are certainly influences that I look to, and I think – creativity ultimately is about blending the influences that have been most impactful to you to the extent that you're cognizant of them. Sometimes you're not. But in my case, I'm very, very uh, careful about who I read and what I draw from them. So I can't say that it's like one particular author, but I can certainly point to specific elements. So one of the, one of the, one of the authors I break down in the book is Malcolm Gladwell. 
I think he's fantastic. Everyone thinks he's fantastic because he is fantastic. But um, there are certain things about Gladwell that stand out for me. I think his word selection is stellar. I think his stories are less interesting for me probably than they are for most readers because they go on for a long time. And that's less interesting for me. It doesn't hold my attention quite as well. He tells them really well. But that's not an influence for me. The influence is the word selection. Whereas I think the Heath brothers style of telling stories is much closer to what I prefer. Uh, they probably still go a little longer than me, but I, uh, at least they, to me, they're, they're very punchy in the way they present them. And so I, I look to them in, uh, for the way that they write their stories, but probably the biggest influence is, um, outside my field entirely, which is fiction writing. And so I spend more time reading fiction than I do reading nonfiction. And that's intentional because I want to have those influences impact the way that I write. And so, the, the takeaway for me is that I blend influences that I'm drawn to, and that's an approach that anyone can use regardless of their field. So if you're a designer, you can look to a particular designer who's uh, the best in your field, but then you might also look to, I don't know, Japanese architecture or Middle Eastern music and blend those influences to create something entirely new. And that's the goal of this and the goal of reverse engineering. It's not simply to copy someone else's approach, but to identify why it works so that you can take the best elements and mix them together. Speaking of that merger, specifically around creativity, you had this fascinating research study around drawing and creativity. It was a three-day study. Do you remember the study at all? Yeah, of course. So uh, this is the study. Yeah, did you have a question? No, no, I, I would just love to dive into this. I thought this one was fascinating. Yeah, yeah it, it really was. <laughs> it's a study that once I read, it, I was like, okay, now I feel like I can really bring this argument home. Because before then, before I discovered this study, it was a little tricky because I, th- I thought a lot of people were going to give me um, cri- criticism around the idea of reverse engineering because it's just copying. And it's not just copying. It's not how I meant it. What I meant was for it to be a thoughtful approach for analyzing why it is you're drawn to particular examples. But this study shows that um, even if you were to copy, it would actually be better for you. And so here's what the study showed. This is a University of Tokyo study where creativity experts brought in amateur artists and they had them draw original works over the course of three days. And they split them up into two groups. The first group just did the original drawings three days straight. The second group Uh, something happened to them on the second day of the experiment. And the second day of the experiment, instead of creating original works, what they were asked to do was copy the work of an established artist. And the dependent measure in the study, the thing that the experimenters were interested in, is who was most creative on the third day? Was it the folks who had just continuously drilled on creating original works for three days straight? Or the group that had paused to copy the work of an established artist? And they brought in... um, objective judges to come in and rate the the different images that were created on the third day. And what they found was that the group that had paused to copy the work of an established artist was actually more creative than the group that had just created original works over three days. And it wasn't by simply mimicking the style of the art that they copied on day two. It was by going off in completely different directions. And the question was, how do you become more creative by copying someone else's work? And the answer is because when you stop to to pause and, 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 um, um, recreate someone else's work, that forces you to compare your initial instinct against the decisions of a master. And that approach where you're constantly pausing to consider what you would do versus what the other person did, that opens your mind up to new ideas that you would have normally ignored in your own work. And so far from making us hacks, copying actually makes us more creative so long as we then go off and create something entirely different 
after the act of copying. That, that was just one of those illuminating reference points for me that just reshaped how I approach creativity and, and even my own path. Uh, I'm wondering for you, kind of uh, just around your own journey, what was that process like for you, that evolution uh, of studying others and then kind of getting to that point where you're creating your own unique work with your own style? Mm. I don't know that I've ever uh, – I feel like there's, you know, the, one of the, the in, in, in chapter three of this book, I talk about the different ways you can evolve formulas. And the last one, it has to do with how even if you try to copy something entirely, you're probably going to screw it up. And you're going to screw it up in a way that injects your own influence into your formula. And I feel like that's kind of been my approach where I've always enjoyed um, just writing about the things that I would want to read about. And so I can't say that I've deliberately like sat there in a lab where it's like three doses of Gladwell, one dose of the Heath brothers, five doses of Stephen King. It's not like that precise, but I am constantly curious about why something is working. And so I'll give you an example in the, I was watching, the, uh, just started this weekend with my kids watching in the Heights and that's the Lin-Manuel Miranda movie version of his Broadway show. And what's interesting is that Lin-Manuel Miranda doesn't, he's not recreating the Broadway show. Everyone considers him a complete original, but he's not recreating the Broadway show. What he is doing is he's taking an established formula of the Broadway show and he's adding on top of that rap and salsa. And so it's a combination of different elements, but there's an approach there. You could see what the formula is. And interestingly, In the Heights wasn't a success out of the gate. It took many years to get it there. But once Lin-Manuel Miranda added a fourth element, which was American history, to create Hamilton, that's when it really took off. And now people are going back to In the Heights and wanting to want to see that made as a movie. So I'm always trying to think in blueprints. How was this created? What can I learn from this? And how do I apply this to my approach? And I think that that methodology, that way of thinking is applicable to anyone in any field and will help you succeed faster. You mentioned just being able to think a bit more. Uh, I'm not sure if it's a, it's a chapter or a specific section, the case for thinking more and doing less. Uh, I would love to know because, I, I mean, as someone who, who tries to zoom out as much as possible with, with looking at my own businesses and being able to zoom into the details, how, how can we take a, a more methodical approach to being able to think more and actually doing less? Well, one of the examples that I talk about in the book is becoming a collector. This is one of the strategies that I uh, – and the uh, book with is I give you all of the strategies kind of laid out in just a few pages. Here's what you need to do. And the first strategy is becoming a collector. And the, when we think about collections, we think about physical objects. We think about shoes or we think about stamps or we think about wine or artwork. That definition of physical objects as being the only path to being a collector is too narrow. A better approach is to collect examples in your field that really stand out. So, Sean, in your case, it might be particular podcasts, or in my field, uh, it might be a particular article. Designers will collect logos, copywriters collect headlines, presenters create uh, collect presentation decks. And that approach to collecting, having the collection that you can then scan for inspiration and then compare the ordinary against the extraordinary uh, th meaning things that made your collection versus things that you didn't put in your collection and then comparing what's different about the examples in my collection. That's an approach that, that demystifies the underlying formula in the works that you find impactful. And it's one that doesn't require a ton of work. It's just 
implementing that habit of, of collecting things. It could be just in bookmarks or using Pinterest or having a Google Doc, but it's the act of collecting and then asking yourself what's different about this example or in the parlance of the book, I talk about playing spot the difference. So when we were kids, we had those two images side by side and we needed to identify what were the discrepancies between image A versus image B. That same methodology is what you need to apply to your field by comparing what's in your collection versus what's not in your collection to determine the factors that went into creating it. What I love that you bring to light is it's not just about collecting, right? Like we, we've got to go to those next steps and that spot the difference technique is one I love. Uh, I love collecting podcasts, great quotes, articles, books, things like that. We, we had on uh, Randall Stutman. Uh, he works with Admired Leadership. They work with a lot of Wall Street executives and, and high-powered CEOs. And he said he's got story journals, um, um, even just silly little things like great joke journals. And he collects these over times. And he was saying the large number of people he works with all have these types of things where they've collected and distilled down the key insights. So I, I just love some, some of the parts you brought up there around spotting the difference for you because to one of your the- point, let me just add to that, Sean. So yeah. I, I was talking to a client of mine and uh, he shared with me one of his practices and it's he, when he reads books, he will highlight or underline certain facts and then he will place them in a Google doc. And he looks at that Google doc before going into a client meeting or goes into a job interview and having that inspiration of great ideas uh, just makes him a fountain of insights when he goes into those meetings, into those crucial periods. And it's so interesting because normally what would you do before an interview or a client meeting is you research the client. But here, this is a different approach to just remind yourself of all the great insights that you've read. Well, one of the things I love about that too is you're using spaced repetition. You're revisiting those facts over and again, so they're getting ingrained even more and more uh, in your neural pathways there. What about for you? What's your process like? I, I know you dive a lot into, into academic articles. Are you revisiting them at all? Or are you kind of just looking at them one time, categorizing them, distilling them, yeah. and then moving on? Great question. So I, um, when I'm reading, I underline. I used to I used to highlight, but then uh, tragically, I found that uh, highlights fade over time. <laughs> All your work disappears. So now I just use a pen. And uh, I've just got, you know, thousands of books. And I underline what I find interesting. I don't try to connect it to anything particular when I'm reading it. Just if it's interesting, I'll underline it. And then if I'm working on a particular project, meaning I'm writing a book proposal or I'm planning out a book, I will go through my entire library and just look at the underlines. And the underlines Invariably, if I look at it, you know, within one uh, frame, thinking about this book versus another book, I'll have different ideas, but they serve as prompts. And so it's a process of collecting uh, the material and then connecting it to a different thesis. I love that that kind of multidisciplinary approach, being able to connect that that lattice work of models and views. That's that's fantastic. One of the things I really enjoy that that you highlight in decoding greatness is just around the vision ability gap. And you tell a great story in the book. You talk about sparking people's curiosities. I'm obsessed with like heist and bank robberies. And so I, I would love to know what one of the the all time great bank robbers has to do with the vision ability gap. First of all, I want to thank you for asking me about that. I've been now on. I don't know, 50 interviews. No one asked me about this story. This story is like the best story in the book. And so I'm glad you picked it out. So this is a, this is a uh, guy in the, um, who, who, his name is George Leonidas Leslie. And he lived at the turn of, at, at around the, at the mid century of the um, 19th century. He was the most successful bank robber of, of the century. And 
how he did it was that he was a trained architect and he um, was one of these posh New York City types who would just hang out at the opera and little, little did anyone know, he was also affiliated with all of these criminals. And what he would do is he would go into banks and he would ask to open an account, and uh, a safety deposit box specifically. And they would then take him to the back where he could see what the, um, what the safe looked like and, and the layout of the bank. And then he'd return home and he would draw the blueprints up. And after creating the blueprints for the place for memory, he would then create a replica in an abandoned warehouse where his gang could practice breaking in. On top of that, he would identify the particular safes that the bank used and then order one for himself so that he could practice cracking into it. And um, there's some there's debate over how he exactly got into these safes. Many believe that he would drill a hole on top of the dial, which allowed him to manipulate the, um, the, the inner workings of the safe without having to actually crack the code. Uh, and then he would putty them up and paint them the same color as the safe so that no one would know how he'd get in. And what the approach teaches us is that, yes, he had the blueprints, right? Because he was able to recreate them as a trained architect. But that wasn't enough in order to just break into banks. He also needed the practice phase where he created the replica and had his gang practice. In some cases, he would blow out the candles so that they had to practice in complete darkness. And that approach is one that's necessary for all of us. It's not enough to know what we want to create. We also need to bridge the gap between our vision and ability. And practice is one element of that. And, and the second half of Decoding Greatness talks about all of these strategies for skill building that are based in science. Yeah, the, the, the thing this connected to me the most was I, I have a few friends that are current SEALs and a few that are former SEALs, and, and they talk about this. W when they're working on a potential mission, they actually replicate, say it's going to be a house, and, and they rep it out, rep it out. And w one of my friends was like, Sean, you don't understand. He goes, I could just do this blindfolded. I, I've literally repped this out hundreds of times when we're storming a house. And this is this just reminding me so much because so many people, it's right, they have that vision of what they want to get to. But then they, they don't do the work required for that. And, and you bring this to light so well. I love that. For, for you, where do you think you've put the most time in terms of refining your practice? Like where has the most work been required for you? Good question. Um, where has the most work been required for me? In terms of writing, you mean? Yeah, it, it, that's what you want to view. I mean, it, it's it's almost unique today, right? As a as a as an author, you, you've got to be responsible for marketing. You've got to understand your own business. So there's a lot of things. I, I'm just curious for you where you're like, I've had to put a, my head down with a considerable amount of time and focus in order to skill up um, to get to this ability level that I need to. <laughs> Man, it's a good question. I, I, I don't know uh, that I can say, okay, I've worked on this in terms of like repetition to the extent that I would if I was, if I had a very clear path about what I wanted to build. I can say that in terms of marketing, I will study a lot of what other authors are doing and what's working and then try to figure out what I'm most comfortable with. Um, and so there's definitely a large chunk of it is kind of the scanning phase and then deconstructing what's working and how it's working. And that, so that's an approach that I apply both to writing and to marketing. Um, I'm not sure that I can identify a particular thing that I felt like, okay, this is the thing I really need to level up on. I guess if anything, I'm very, um, uh, I'm 
I like to include a lot and I need to pare it down. So often what you'll find, you read a lot of business books, Sean, so you'll, you'll probably notice this. Most business books will have one big idea and then they will go on and on and on about that idea for two to three hundred pages too long. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, if anything, I am way too broad. I'm the opposite direction. I like that about myself, but at the same time, if I w- wrote the book that I wanted to write here, it would have been probably a thousand pages. And so my editor very helpfully pointed out, hey, you know what, Ron, why don't you cut it down and just focus on reverse engineering in this book? Because what I would have written would have been an encyclopedia of top performance, but instead I broke it down into different books. So if this book is about reverse engineering. The next book, book will be about some other aspect of top performance. Um, but uh, I guess I guess if, if, if there's anything I need help with, it's uh, perhaps becoming a little bit less inclusive and less ambitious in what I'm trying to put out in a book. It's just easier for easier for people to understand when it's simple. I, I almost cringe when you say that because I, I I love going that like level deeper. So I, I don't want you to. I do these really like intense recaps. Um, and your book is one of those. It's just like I've just been highlighting and uh, and underlining so many different sections because there's so many fascinating studies, research article, so many different things that I'm just like I have to keep this. Um, so I actually really enjoy your process, and I would almost love yeah, it. If you I'm just with released- you. Yeah, it's just what I want to continue doing. I really like being unapologetically broad and pulling in, okay, what's this bank robber doing? How does that connect to what Tony Romo's doing when he's broadcasting games? Like that approach of just like giving you, um, I don't know, if, insight whiplash, I guess, <laughs> is is something that I really enjoy. And I'm, I'm glad that that resonated with you. Well, we need to dive into Tony Romo. I, I, I come from an elite sports background. So I spent years just developing that pattern recognition. And is it that that athletes truly see into the future? Um, is that what they're doing when, when Tony Romo is calling a game? Did, does he and understand the future better, better than everyone else? Yeah, I love that story too. And Tony Romo, you know, was a mediocre quarterback, as, as you'll recall, and ended up uh, becoming this sensational broadcaster where he can predict a play before it's about to happen. And what um, Romo's ability teaches us is not that athletes can see the future, but rather that through practice and a particular type of practice, they're able to build their anticipation skills. So in the case of Romo, it wasn't that he was. Um, you know, born with this ability to predict plays. He's not any kind of phenom. If anything, uh, he was an underperformer when he first joined the league. So I talk about how if there's footage of, of Romo when he first entered the league and was practicing with his then coach, Bill Parcells, Parcells would rip into him for not being better able to anticipate what was going to happen before the snap. But obviously today, it's a very different picture when Romo can, if he's broadcasting a game, will tell us what the offense is about to do and what the defense is about to do. And he he will do so with remarkable accuracy. And how Romo got from point A to point B is through practice, but not the practice that we normally think of when we think of practice. When most people think of practice, they think of practicing in the present, meaning doing something over and over again, and then utilizing the feedback they get on their performance to improve the next time. That's practicing in the present. But there's two other dimensions of practice that I talk about in the book, which is practicing in the past and practicing in the future. So practicing in the past, meaning reflective practice. We've all heard of deliberate practice, but reflective practice is comparing what your initial expectations were to your actual experience. And that's looking back in time. And we talked about the five-year journal. It's a great way of incorporating reflective practice into your daily life. Practicing in the future is imagery. So imagining what you're about to do and really taking yourself through all the senses and all the steps that you'll need to do in order to actually 
execute whatever the act is, whether it be writing or speaking or playing a sport. And there's research showing that visualizing what you're about to do improves your performance by a remarkable degree. There's research showing that it makes speakers more persuasive and more calm and surgeons make fewer mistakes when they're conducting surgery. And piano players are better able to learn songs. They learn them more quickly if they first use imagery to imagine themselves uh, playing that song. And so it's a tool that is really underutilized outside the domain of sports. And it's one that we can all use to improve our performance. And the same goes for reflective practice. There's research out of Harvard Business School showing that you can improve your performance at work by over 20% by simply asking yourself at the end of the day, what did I learn today? That exercise of just thinking about what you learned that day helps distill insights that may have been in, in kind of lurking in the background and brings them to the forefront of your consciousness, improving your performance. Yeah, you mentioned it doesn't take a lot with that reflective practice to, to get a lot of benefits. I know in the book you do bring up, I'm pretty sure it was Jim Harbaugh who ends up spending six hours a day studying film. So you don't need to go to that extreme. Um, and, and then the visualization, that's something I, I've spent years doing again and again. And I love one of the examples you brought up, the, the, the legendary tennis player, uh, Billie Jean King. And, and one of the keys there is not just mentally um, – visualizing it but also like bring your emotions where like she'd spike up her heart rate and picture every little detail of like the socks she was wearing the crowd everything like that um it's so cool when you when you see and decode what these top performers are doing and like i said earlier the games inside the games i'm just i'm just fascinated with that uh, around even with romo it's like the the expert is looking at less but seeing more and it's just mm. that amount of practice and work for, I'm curious though, like for you and just now the multiple books you, you've written, where where are you looking at less but seeing more right now? That's a great question, Sean. Man, <laughs> uh, where am I? I, I would say it, it, there, certainly there is a repertoire that you develop about how you can, you can open a section and how you can connect sections. That would take me a long time originally, and part of it had to do with I would write without outlining. And I would just see where it went and then try to connect the different sections. Uh, it's a little inside baseball, but what I would say I do a lot more of now is outlining. I think 75% of the work is in the outline. And if you can connect the sections in the outline, writing becomes a pleasure because then you know what you're doing. So it's all about mapping out what you want to do in advance before sitting down to actually write it. And so now I'm better at identifying points where I'm going to get stuck and solving for them before I start writing. Now, now you have me curious. There's like the merger we were just talking about, Elite Athletics, and we, we can talk about Romo when he would look at um, a certain play developing, right? Like the armchair quarterback would be looking at this, and they'd be taking in every little factor where Romo can just filter out a ton of the stuff yeah. you don't need, similar to you um, being able to filter out a lot of things. How do you improve that process of just becoming a better filterer? Part of it is experience, is just noticing what is less likely to work and more likely to work. And so by just having that experience of knowing this has worked in the past allows you to draw from that uh, more consistently. So if you're a speaker and you know that you need to fill a three-hour gap uh, in the calendar and you have 45 minutes of material, initially that can seem incredibly intimidating, right? Like how do I take this 45-minute talk and make it a three-hour talk? 
But when you've done it for a few years, you realize it's actually quite simple. You don't need another two hours and 15 minutes of material. What you do need are exercises for the audience to do that will fill up that time. And then you can ask them to reflect on what they learned. And they will invariably enjoy that much more than a 45-minute keynote because they get to contribute to it. So that's an example of finding having a repertoire of solutions that have worked in the past that can be applied to a new situation that you wouldn't necessarily know unless you had that experience. Speaking of that, that experience, I'm really envious of just the uh, amount of different studies, articles, interesting things you can pull from. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering, like, what outside your field have you just spent the most time researching and thinking about? Outside, meaning outside psychology? I guess it depends on uh, where it is so I'll start by figuring out what is the insight that I want to share. And then I'll start just, I will spend a lot of time doing Google searches and just chasing uh, ideas and purchasing books and just give myself the, uh, the license to just explore. And what I talk about in the book is about how really creativity is just combining ideas. And so when you have that lens of, your creativity is going to come not from complete originality, but by finding connections between things that gives you license to chase your curiosities and even enjoy your guilty pleasures because it's in those experiences of analyzing the things that you find interesting, that you find different elements that you can combine in new ways. And so rather than viewing it as a waste of time to watch sports Uh, You know, for example, I used to view it that way, but now I realize, no, there's actually a lot of interesting stories I can pull from this if I give myself the ability to just do that, to just enjoy basketball, for example. Uh, And so maybe I'll find a story that will weave into a different chapter. Um, So really, it's just a different framework for thinking about your guilty pleasures. Speaking of curiosity, which is a word that, that's come up multiple times, uh, I'm wondering for you, like, where's the passion at? Clearly, you just have a ton of passion to even be diving into this amount of research. Like, what's what's the driver? Where do you get most excited around the work you do? Man. <laughs> so many good questions. Uh, where do I find uh, the driver? I, I really enjoy the fact that you've enjoyed reading this book. So that for me is the driver. It's like, let me see all these cool stories. And I just feel like I have a pretty good sense for what other people are going to find interesting, or at least the nugget that people are going to find impactful. And I'm, I'm, um, I, I draw a lot of pleasure out of finding those cool stories and then those finding those cool studies and then seeing the connections between the two. Yeah. You, you mentioned finding things that are really impactful. What, what about for you? Are there a few people, books, articles, research studies that have just been impactful for you that even that you could have come across in multiple years ago, but they're just still sitting there kind of top of mind for you? Well, I guess the reflective practice, which we talked about, was really critical because so much of um, our understanding of where knowledge and wisdom comes from centers on the idea that it comes from the outside in. And we overlook this real huge opportunity, which is learning from ourselves. And it's because we rely on memory to get better. And incorporating reflective practice, as I talk about in the book, has really shaped my thinking a great deal in terms of making better decisions, being able to zoom out and see patterns about what really makes a difference in my life and what doesn't. Uh, You know, a minor example of this is social events. I'm not somebody who gets excited to go to weddings or barbecues. I dread them, but invariably I have a good time at them. 
So I've learned that about myself through reflective practice. And now I can make better decisions about how to spend my time. Along the same lines is um, reading. This is going to sound funny, but you know, one of the tragedies of putting out a book is that you need to then go market that book. And marketing that book is really consuming in terms of time and energy. And so for the past five months, I've read very little, which is really tragic if you think about it. Like this is my, this is the thing I'm good at is like reading a ton and then finding the best parts and then putting it in a book. I have not been able to read. And I've learned both through uh, my experience, you know, you kind of forget about how, how much you enjoy reading when you haven't done it for a while. But I kind of that constant reminder in my uh, five-year journal about like, I need to read more and reading, reading is, is possibly the most enjoyable thing I do outside of exercise. So um, I guess that's had a real impact for me as reflective practice. I think it can have a real impact on anyone and it's not going to be just reading for you. It could be something completely different that you weren't expecting, but you won't know until you start incorporating this practice into your life. Yeah. That that reflective practice. um, I got some great takeaways from the book, but that that general idea and concept has just been foundational for me. Uh, you mentioned one of your favorite things to do is read. Uh, same with me. This, this does not have to be um, nonfiction books. I'm just wondering: are, are there any books that you just thoroughly enjoyed over the years? Oh man, so many. Um, so uh, first of all, one book I did read this year was reading to my son every night. We read The Ichabog by J.K. Rowling. And the Ichabog is a really well done book. And it's, um, my son is eight. If you're, you have kids around that age, it's perfect for them. It's a little bit violent. He likes violence because he's eight and he's a boy. Uh, but um, super well written. Uh, she's just an expert storyteller. Another book I'll, I'll share that I think is worth picking up is one by Ann Patchett, the fiction writer. It's, but this one is a nonfiction book. It's called This is the Story of a Happy Marriage. And, Sean, you'll recall in the introduction to part two, I talk about Patchett's experience writing books and how when she's imagining a book, it's just this beautiful butterfly flying around her head. But then when she has to start writing it, she feels like it's her driving over a butterfly with an SUV because the act of taking the idea and putting it down on paper is just so brutal for writers. That came from this is a story of a happy marriage. And a lot of people talk about Stephen King's on writing as the best book on writing. For me, it's Ann Patchett's, this is the story of a happy marriage. It's also uh, her just development as a human, but it, there's a lot of great stuff on how to write and how and her process that uh, I found really impactful. Awesome. Yeah. One of the things I definitely did is obviously flip to the end of the book and then figure out all, all the resources and references. So, so when you guys do pick up Decoding Greatness, that, that's a great way to, to tap into some of these, these other things that, that you've highlighted. Uh, I'm wondering, just kind of being able to, to do a little reflective practice, you're a few months removed now, what for you like has changed you the most with writing this book specifically? This is something my editor told me, and I uh, it has become just this is my second book. So my first book, uh, as I mentioned, was about the best place to work. And going from zero to one, having zero books to one book is a huge life changer. So, uh, but going from one book to two books is less of a life changer, but just you get better at understanding what it is that makes a book important and useful and impactful and whether it's enjoyable for you. And one of the things my editor said is, if you write a book, you better really enjoy that content because you're going to be talking about it nonstop for months. And it's completely true. And I think that certainly I I love talking about reverse engineering, but I think I've learned that um, 
you need to be really careful about the subject that you invest all that time in. Because I think at the beginning, and this is probably true for any aspect of a career, the question that you focus on is, can I do this? That's, that's the question I focused on when I wrote the first book, which is, can I write a book? And as you get better at something, the question should change from, can I do this to, should I do this? Meaning that, imagine that you will do it. Will that be a good use of your time? And I think that I've, that, that is a learning that I, I'm going to stick with me for some time is, don't think about, can I do this? Think about, should I do this? And, and imagine yourself having succeeded and then ask yourself, was it worth it? I love that. That is a great framework and thought experiment to run there. Final question before we link you up with the listeners. Um, if you could just sit down and do a long-form interview like this, spend an evening just having a conversation, great meal with someone, dead or alive, just not a family member or friend, who would you love to have that Oh, man, you with? took out family member or friend. Yeah. Oh, I, was, I had my answer, but now I've got to think of a different answer. Uh, anyone, it, it, dead or alive, I guess Stephen King. I would say Stephen King. I'm fascinated by his ability not just to write good stories, but to do it as consistently and as quickly as he does. He's clearly got a factory. James Patterson is another one, but James Patterson has co-authors. So it's interesting because he's built almost like a brand name for himself where he's got – I think he outlines the books and somebody else writes it. And I I guess either one of those would be interesting to me because I am fascinated by good storytelling and I want to understand the process a little bit better. Yeah, those are two legends I've had on my – we'll call it hit list for the podcast I would love to have on. Uh, Ron, this has been awesome. I I truly did enjoy the book, Decoding Greatness. I I thought it was exceptional. I I read a lot. Um, I really did enjoy this one a lot. Uh, I want to make sure we link you up with the listeners up with you. Where should we send them to to learn more? Of course, we'll have everything um, in the show notes, but anywhere specifically you want them going right away? Well, if you're interested in the book, check out decodinggreatnessbook.com. We have a website there that allows you to get the book anywhere you want. And if you send us your receipt, you'll get a free course on how to reverse engineer and a lot of great bonuses on top of that. And it's completely free. So that's a great resource to go to. You can find out more about me at ronfriedmanphd.com or at my company website, which is Ignite80, Ignite80.com. And the reason it's called Ignite80 is because over 80% of employees are not fully engaged at work. So the mission of Ignite80 is to teach leaders science-based principles for elevating people's performance and health and happiness at work. I love it. Well, Dr. Ron Friedman, thanks so much for joining us on What Got You There. My pleasure, Sean. Great questions. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.